Okay, um, we are in First Peter two. Uh, we left First Peter one, uh, where we learn that this church um, they are starting to seem like misfits or worse in their culture, uh, maybe deviants. Uh, people are despising them because of their uh, unwillingness to engage in certain practices they used to engage in, and so we had this. Uh, this paradox where they are rejected on the one hand by their culture, but chosen by God. And we see that continue in chapter 2. The end of 1 Peter, uh, verse 23, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Um, This seems to be connected with what we get at the beginning of chapter 2, this language of born again and seed and uh, like babies craving milk. All this seems to have this this new birth idea, this beginnings. Uh, So we're seeing, I think here as we've seen elsewhere, the idea of of this new Christian thing being not a a, um, a one-time event, you get saved, but an ongoing saving, as we'll get at the end of verse um, 3 here in just a second. Or maybe it's verse 2. Yeah, growing into your salvation. Uh, So with that idea of new beginnings, we'll get into chapter 2. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, or maybe just badness. It's kakion, you hear um, that language in the Greek. And all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into your salvation, since you have tasted that the Lord is good. So there is a move on our part, we who call ourselves a church, to rid ourselves of certain things. It's not as though God's going to do it all for us, but we partner with Him in this. Um, and then to crave something new. We crave that pure spiritual milk like newborn babies. In, uh, where was it, Hebrews maybe? Uh, I get my books confused, even though I shouldn't. Uh, this language, uh, you, should, you, shouldn't uh, you should be past milk at this point. Um, but here that's not, the point isn't you should be more mature. It's like, No, you know how babies, when they're hungry, they're just craving that milk. This is what he wants them to be, those who desire this. Uh, And maybe maybe it's not coincidence uh, that as he calls them to crave one thing, he also calls them to rid themselves of something else, maybe creating space so that you might crave. It's kind of hard to drum up a craving for something that maybe you don't feel like. But if you've ever, um, you know, think about uh, food. Sometimes we don't crave our vegetables or crave healthy food, especially when we have a pantry full of junk food. But when you rid yourselves of the junk food, you begin to crave something more healthy. Um, the, the times when I have fasted, I have been uh, surprised at the things that I am wanting to eat. I hate onions. When I'm hungry and I'm fasting, I'm like, I would eat an on- onion right now. Like, but maybe ridding ourselves of some of this stuff is how we create space to crave that which we should crave. Um, so that space maybe matters here. And you, you're getting the, the, the two ways. They, they're misfits in their culture. Uh, and one of the things that's making them misfits maybe is as they're cleansing themselves of uh, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, uh, they are filling themselves with the opposite. Not badness, but goodness. Not deceit, but truthfulness. Not hypocrisy, but as we learned last week, unhypocritical love. Not envy, but generosity. Not slander, but encouragement. You kind of see uh, a new that new language, a new way of life, and then we see at the end of verse 2, to grow into. Your salvation isn't a one-time event, but you grow up into your salvation. Thank goodness, because um, I am glad I am not at the same place I was when I first kind of entered this journey. Uh, But there is a a growing into it, which makes us then um, 
some of us anyway, have to rethink our concept of what salvation is. Um, salvation is more, it seems like, in First Peter than going to heaven when you die, uh, but it's something that you're becoming as well. So maybe he's, he's bringing in this broader idea of who we were created to be. Thinking back Genesis 1, you were created in the image of God. And maybe having fallen from that, uh, part of growing into salvation is not just where we're going, our destiny, but also who we're becoming, being prepared for that destiny, uh, being prepared to bear the image of God so that we might be in his presence. Just some thoughts there um, as we expand our definition of salvation to include something we might grow into. Verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and honored by him. Yours might say precious. I think honored is better here, and I'll get to that, uh, get to why when we get to verse 6. Um, but we already got some neat stuff going on here. Uh, the language of living stone, uh, I, think, um, I think is perhaps intentionally um, supposed to catch us off guard. I believe a living stone and, and kind of ancient mindset was a stone that hadn't been moved. It's a stone that's always been where it's found. Uh, and here it's going to be a stone that has been moved that's going to be the cornerstone for a building, which would be a not living stone because it's been taken from its place of origin and now it's being shaved and chiseled uh, to be a stone for a building. And this is going to fit who Jesus is. He is one who everyone thinks might not be living, but he is living. This stone uh, that appears uh, to be dead is actually the cornerstone and it's a living stone. What else we get in uh, verse 4 is Jesus is one rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. This is the same situation that uh, the church that Peter's writing to. Uh, they are those rejected by one group and chosen by God. So we're seeing different value systems. From God's perspective, chosen. The world's perspective, rejected. So as they're feeling like misfits, they're wondering if something's wrong, uh, Peter is telling them, this is the same thing that happened to your Messiah and to your Lord. Don't be surprised that it's happening to you if you're following faithfully. Um, before maybe we move too far in this, we're going we're gonna to see a sense at the end of chapter 2 about what following Jesus looks like, what might make them seem like misfits. And I find it very frustrating um, sometimes what makes Christians misfits in our contemporary culture. Um, some of the, the way that Christianity gets tied to um, certain political claims that may or may not be Christian, but I just dislike the way, and, and I don't care your political persuasion, but um, the way that, that sometimes things like Christianity is married to, you know, um, the Second Amendment. You know, I mean, it's okay to have strong feelings about the Second Amendment. This is not a, a, a sermon against that. But it's weird when that's what Christians might be known for or associated with as a central kind of idea. And I wonder if, if maybe Peter would be scratching his head like, you're misfits for these reasons? No, you're misfits because you're following the way of the cross uh, with or without that. That's like a, a secondary or tertiary thing at best. Um, and yet uh, right-wing politics and evangelical Christianity are strange bed partners uh, in our culture. But here we are, verse 4, rejected by one and chosen by God. So he's already kind of lining them up. Where do you want to be in this? We know as we get back in chapter one, uh, humans are like flowers of the field. They wither. Which perspective do you want? Do you want 
the perspective where you're honored by God and chosen by him or where you're honored by fleeting humans. So here Peter's maybe reminding them they've made the wise though difficult choice. Verse 5, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, What Jesus is, we uh, are following in his footsteps. He is the capital I image of God. We are lowercase I images of God. He is a capital L living stone. We are lowercase L living stones. Um, And this is why, um, I mean, this, this... we're going to keep seeing this. There, he's living stone, we're living stones. Uh, Jesus is rejected, we are rejected. We, as the church here in First Peter. He is chosen, we are chosen. Um, Can yeah. um, <clears throat> The spiritual sacrifices part acceptable to God it's so easily makes me think of Psalm 50 and 51. It's like, I don't need your sacrifices, you know, or, you know, you don't need sacrifices from us. We you and the cattle on a thousand hill what you want is a broken and contrite heart and thankfulness like those are mm-hmm. those are things that god wants from us yes yeah so but he also says in Romans 12 present your bodies as a living sacrifice, sacrifice. yeah your reasonable service or your spiritual service yeah and he's kind of not animals. yeah yeah so it's it's going to be bigger i mean and some that's some of what we get in the latter half of of first peter is Okay, you're getting your identity, who you are, and now what's it mean to live out that identity? What's it mean to be a royal priesthood? And, um, and he's still kind of building that identity before he, he maybe explains what that looks like. But I think both of these are, and they go hand in hand very nicely, um, certainly. Um, so we'll actually pick up on this language of being a priesthood um, down in verse 9, what that might refer to. Uh, the language of house here. Uh, could be temple, yours might say temple, or community. It's again dealing with identity. They are like a new Israel, a new temple for God. And the language of house, if, if house gives you structure, you know, you, some of you uh, who are parents or uh, you've said stuff like, in our house, this is how we operate. You know, you come and your kids say to you, but so-and-so has a tablet already, or so-and-so gets to do this, and you say, well, that's what they do in their house. In our house, this is what we do. Uh, and so in a, in a place in which... Um, they are kind of in limbo. Where do we fit now? We're rejected by our culture. This is your house. And you know who your father is. And this is how we're going to operate in this house uh, is maybe part of what's being um, captured in this language of being a spiritual house. Yes, temple, but also household. Because we're about to get a household code in a little bit. How are slaves to respond to masters, wives, husbands? Um, Yeah. This word, uh, you know, we offer these sacrifices and some of the more modern... Like through the mediation of Jesus. Through the media. This whole concept of mediation is receiving a lot of press these days because so many businesses have included uh, clauses in their contracts when mm-hmm. you buy something that if there's a dispute, you have to go to arbitration. You oh, okay. Sue. You have to go, to, so a mediator is appointed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so even our sacrifices might not be acceptable, they wouldn't on their face, our body will be sacrificed. But Jesus is our mediator, he's hmm. going to work with God other party yeah and help them to be accepted that makes sense and that fits what we get in hebrews of jesus as the high priest we're a priesthood but he's the high priest you can see how that might fit there as well nice um for in scripture verse six for in scripture it says see i lay a stone in zion a chosen and honored cornerstone so verse four jesus is chosen and honored 
Here, same language, chosen and honored. Uh, and that he's a cornerstone is, is great. Here's how uh, Joel Green describes um, the importance of a cornerstone. And you can think uh, pretty clearly about how this continues to speak to us. A co- yeah. For in scripture, and I don't know that word, peri-echo, yeah, I don't know that, that language. It would be a, a, a nice little play on words there. It's not a typical, the typical says. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, that's just showing my ignorance of rare words. Peri-echo, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that word. Um, try, to, try to choose words I do know in the future. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's very short, so yeah, no. Um, so the, the language of cornerstone, we'll go back to something where I'm a little better at. Um, it's not only the stone at the corner of two intersecting walls, okay, that's excited, or that's, you know, um, understood, but it is one prepared and chosen for its exact 90 degree angle, and so the basis for the construction of the whole building. Choosing the right corner is basic not only to the aesthetics of the building, but also to its stability and longevity. Jesus is the true cornerstone uh, that everything else is, is, um, is judged by or is, is built according to. He is the true right, uh, pun intended, right? He is the true right angle and the true right for our lives. Uh, I love, I just never understood that about the cornerstone. Um, but if we're thinking then about Peter calling them how to judge their lives accordingly, here is your true right. And this is how you build that spiritual temple according to the pattern, that language we're going to get in a little bit, I hope we get to, the pattern of Christ. And the one who puts trust in him will never be put to shame. Here's why I think the language in verse 4 and that we'll get later um, is not a precious cornerstone but an honored one. The word I think can mean either. Um, because they're living in an honor-shame culture. They've experienced a lot of shame, and so the opposite of that is, no, you are actually held in honor by God just as your true living stone, your cornerstone is, um, this foundation to your building. Verse 7, now to you who believe... Oh, wait, I skipped the the quote there. Uh, This is from Isaiah 28. Um, CLA in Zion, a stone, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So earlier, uh, Peter says, look, the prophets were writing about this. They didn't fully understand it, but they were excited about it. They knew in some ways they were speaking to you. Here's some stuff from Isaiah 28 where this comes from that you can kind of hear echoes or foreshadowings maybe of Jesus. Woe to that wreath, that pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty. So we got that language earlier, this sense of fading uh, to the old standard. And that day the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to those who sit in judgment. So you have true judgment coming, uh, lasting judgment against that fading judgment. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. And then verse 17, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. What is true judgment? What is God going to look at? Righteousness and justice. These are the things that matter in this true right, in this new building. Don't pursue, don't 
arrange your life according to a fading system, but to a lasting system. And it takes effort, and you've got to rid yourself of other stuff, and it's an ongoing process that we are growing up into, uh, but keep struggling. I was talking to my freshman uh, about this same concept we get in Romans, that sometimes in this growing into salvation, I feel like I'm walking up a downhill escalator. That I'm going, and I'm going, and I'm not getting anywhere despite the steps I take and the effort I'm making, that sometimes I feel like, if anything, I'm moving back down, and it is so incredibly frustrating uh, in this growing up into. But I think maybe um, even then, that analogy works because you keep walking up a downhill escalator long enough, and you're going to grow some strong legs, right? You might not look around and think, I've moved very far, but maybe you've become something uh, that you don't even realize uh, as you're slowly strengthening and growing. Um, yeah. The, I never really thought about this before, but when the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, that, you know, when, like the religious elite, I think of, you know, saying, hey, here's this Jesus guy who doesn't know what he's talking about. What, what God designed as the church was perfect. The, the design was perfect. But then there's humans that get involved and, you know, things tend to go awry. And it, it only goes awry when we're not having him as the, the cornerstone, you know, like we're not looking to Jesus to, to be like that. And when we're imperfect and not Christ-like is when the building, the, you know, the church looks a little off kilter. Yeah, yeah well, as a church or culture, culture, when we don't see Jesus as the true cornerstone, then yeah. Our building's not going to work or people are not going to recognize as a true 90. So it is the true 90, the true cornerstone Jesus is. But uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this. On, on campus sometimes uh, to teach drunk driving, they'll have people uh, put on these goggles that are supposed to be drunk goggles um, and let them ride around a golf cart. And maybe you get something similar here. People are looking at you and thinking that you're skewed. But the truth is it's not that you or Jesus is skewed. It's that they've got drunk goggles on. Uh, and so everything seems skewed to them, and um, uh, even if in fact it's not. Uh, verse 7, now to you who believe, the stone is honored, because you've got two ways of seeing the world. One's from faith, one not from faith. But to those who do not have faith or do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Similar idea, and now he's showing that this idea was also in the Psalms. This is Psalm 118. Just a couple verses here. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Think back to verse 3. You have tasted the Lord is good. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Uh, from, from that perspective, when hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. You can hear how this would speak maybe to the church who is hard-pressed. The Lord is with me. I won't be afraid. What can human beings do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. And then verse 26, I love that this is Psalm 118, about the rejected cornerstone. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In uh, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus enters. This is, um, you know, uh, as he has this triumphal entry, they call out Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
And then he's rejected a couple of chapters later, and he quotes also Psalm 118. The, psalm the, builder, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Even in Psalms itself, it marries these two ideas of rejection uh, and honored by God. And you get it again in verse, in verse 8 from Isaiah 8. A stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. This is the last one I'll, I'll look at, but it's just really interesting to see how some of this is maybe anticipated, even if it wasn't clear prior to Jesus. It's like so much of it's there, but you don't know how to put the pieces together. It's like putting a puzzle together without the box. And then Jesus comes along and you've got the box and it's like, oh, okay, this is where those bizarre colors go and how they fit. And it's like Peter's looking back and saying, now that we have the box, notice Isaiah, notice the Psalms. So here's Isaiah 8. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. Why? Because the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He will be a holy place for both houses of Israel. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a, stare, a snare. Many of them will stumble, they will fall and be broken, they will be snared and captured. The way of Christ is going to be divisive, even though he is the Prince of Peace. It is um, one of those expectations. Is that word scandalous? Uh, here in verse 8, yes. You have a... Scandal. Yeah, he is a scandal, yeah. Uh, they stumble... This is the end of verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So depending on maybe your preconceived notions of this, you can either say, well, this is proof of predestination, that God has destined some to stumble, or uh, those like myself who don't buy into a total kind of predestination. The destination is that those who disobey are destined to stumble, uh, not... Uh, they're destined to disobey and stumble, but those who choose to disobey are then destined for stumbling. Uh, that's how the system is designed. Um, you can take it either way. I just think for multiple other reasons and the larger witness of Scripture, um, predestination doesn't quite fit my theology. Verse 9, but you, you are a chosen people. Who are you? You are one who follows this rejected Messiah who was chosen, and you yourself, though rejected, are a chosen people. The language of people is like a tribe or, or a group, which is really weird because he's writing to maybe a mixed group, people who aren't necessarily related. But in Christ now, those who weren't a people are a people. You're part of a new household. Like it or not, some of us are like, yay, we have family. And others are like, oh, great, bigger family. Uh, but this is what you become part of. If you did Enneagram stuff, I'm a five. I'm thinking more people, that's scary. Um, but this is who we are. We are this people. We can't do this alone. A building with one rock isn't a building. Uh, to be this temple, this house of God, we need each other because we have different gifts. And it's really hard to express to the world the power of brotherly love and reconciliation when you're not showing love or reconciliation with others. Uh, and it's really hard to show the message of the power of reconciliation when you only surround yourself with people you like and agree with. Um, but Jesus is doing something more through us. 
We are a chosen people. And then he's borrowing language from Exodus 19.6. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is who Israel was. Uh, maybe we'll talk about priesthood of believers some other time, but right now it's talking Israel language. You're like the new Israel. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. And I'll read to you something that, that um, corresponds with that once we get at the end of verse 10. Of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. What a beautiful description. Once you were not a people, right? You were scattered. You didn't belong. You weren't united or reconciled. But now you are the people of God. And let that sink in. You, because he's not just writing to, I mean, as he's writing to this church, it still speaks to us. You are the people of God. This is your identity. You are those who had not received mercy and now who have received mercy. Who are you? <laughs> Scary as it sounds, you are the people of God. So here is how one guy writing on, uh, I think, a commentary on Isaiah speaks about Israel. And you can hear how it continues to speak um, of the church. I'll read it first with the words Israel, and then I'll read it a second time with the word church, as we see Peter using language for Israel, now for the church. Israel is God's own people, set apart from the rest of the nation. Israel as a people is dedicated to God's service among the nations as priests function within a society. So what the priests do in Israel, Israel is to do to the nations. Finally, the life of Israel shall be commensurate with the holiness of the covenant of God. The covenant responsibility encompasses her whole life, defining her relation to God and to her neighbors and the quality of her existence. So we're like, okay, we got that with Israel. Now let's hear it with the church. The church is God's own people, set apart from the rest of the nations. The church as a people is dedicated to God's service among the nations as priests function within a society. Finally, the life of the church shall be commensurate with the holiness of the covenant God. Be holy as I am holy. The covenant responsibility encompasses her whole life, defining her relation to God and to her neighbors and the quality of her existence. As we accept and embrace this identity, it then shapes not only our identity, but our mission, our calling in the world. Um, really powerful stuff, I think, that Peter is doing here. And one of the first people, as we're going to get to, that he's going to say, how does this work itself out, is those who are often overlooked. It's going to be the slaves. Those at the bottom of society, he is going to highlight first and show how near they are to the mission of Christ. I think a pretty powerful message about their worth. Verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, right, your misfits, your deviants to your culture, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. This is not easy. This isn't a, um, I mean, this is a battleground. And if you try to pursue holiness, you know exactly what this is like. I mean, even on a, a tiny little scale, my wife and I were talking about this. We snuck away for a date night, and we were saying, you know, we do this thing that checks in. It's really good. I don't know where we got it from, but it's helpful. Uh, how are you doing with God? How do you feel that we're doing? Uh, how are you feeling as a parent right now? And so we, we have this nice little check-in every week or two. Um, but as we're talking about how we're doing about God we, and how we're doing together, we both said, we have such a hard time having any sort of devotional life together. We miss it. We want to have it. We make our best intentions. And no matter what, it's usually one of us at the end of the day is like, I don't really want to do it right now. Why is that? 
we know it matters, we know it's important, we miss it when we don't do it, and yet we never seem to make space for it. Well, I think that this is part of that, that warfare that's waging war. Of course, the opposite side doesn't want you to grow. Um, so sometimes you have to push through. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans, or among the Gentiles, actually. He's writing to Gentiles saying, here's how you live among Gentiles, uh, because they're the new Israel. Uh, this is their new kind of um, identity. Live such good lives among them, not separate in their midst. This isn't a, um, a kind of you know, flight into your own little um, Christian communes. Uh, but live among these people, and though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We get a little insight, chapter 4, verse 4, and the things that they might be accused of. <coughs> they are surprised that you don't join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Interesting, right? You bunch of weirdos, why aren't you joining us in our reveling? <laughs> because we operate according to a different system. Why aren't you worshiping our emperor? Because we have a different Lord. Why don't you worship our gods? Because we believe in one God. Yeah, good luck with that. I'm not doing business with you because I don't want the gods mad at me for supporting you. You misfits, you deviants. But even though they've got drunk goggles on and they're missing some things, Peter seems to expect that through persistent good living, there still might be um, truth and uh, light that comes through. They won't get it all, but they might get some of it. Now verse 13, some of the uh, difficult teaching here about submission. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every uh, human creation is the, the language. Yours might say something like human authority or institution. Whether to the emperor as though he were the supreme authority or to governors as those who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. All right. Um, there are a couple ways to read this language of submit. Uh, it can, one way to make sense of this as we read is, is Peter saying, look, you already don't fit within society. Um, you're already trying to be faithful to God. So what you don't need to do is rock the boat in your household. Um, so kind of function within the household in ways that are not going to be too, um, too bizarre so they can hear the larger, more central message of Christ. Uh, or another way to hear this language of submit um, is, to, is a kind of call of steadfastness. Yes, you're misfits. Yes, you're deviants. Yes, people aren't going to get it. Uh, but, but as you live in those relationships, do so, as we get language here, um, still dedicated to the ways of the cross. So maybe as we, we work through this, you can hear um, how this is, is playing out. Um, already, we know they're misfits. We know they don't honor the emperor the way uh, the emperor might want to be honored. Um, and he puts the emperor here, verse 13, under the larger category, right before that, of human authority or human institution. He is not a god. He's just a human. Or when we jump down uh, to verse 17, honor who? Everyone. And the same word in verse 17, honor the emperor. So you've got the emperor and everyone kind of on equal footing to some degree. But what do you do to God? If you back up on the end of verse 17, you fear or respect God. So, um, man, this is so complex. As he's calling 
So you got this language of submit. And you submit to um, every human institution. And this includes the emperor and governor. So it might sound like he's saying, you know, uh, do whatever they tell you to. But what kind of mitigates this is you fear God. And you honor everyone. What you're supposed to show the emperor, you show to everyone else, which is already messing with the system. The Roman system is not going to say honor everyone. It's you show proper honor according to your rank. And so whatever he's saying in this up here is still Christianized to some degree by, first of all, where you show your real respect to. And it's because you fear God that you're going to honor everyone, including these people. And so when you get something like verse 14, uh, these are the people who are supposed to punish the bad and um, take care of the good. We know already that they don't do that. This is why they're being persecuted and experiencing wrong. It's like in the ideal situation, here's what they're supposed to do. And so you're supposed to kind of submit to some degree to all this. Uh, at the same time, recognizing that your true identity is those who fear God. This is central. This is not central. This is uh, you're trying to live this out, live this out faithfully. You fear God, or as he's going to say, you are God's slaves. And the other part of your identity, which is strangely um, linked to being God's slaves, is you are free. You pledge allegiance to a different king and lord. And as such, you are free, perhaps free from this. But as you live faithfully, the witness of Christ, you do so in a way uh, that still seems tries to show honor and respect. And how this comes together, man, I'm not entirely sure. Um, there, there seems to be an expectation of proper discernment. Um, as one, one author in here says, let me skip ahead just for a second uh, to get this language in verse 21. And maybe this will help you uh, or help us think about navigating this as Christians because I really am not sure. But verse 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. This language is pattern, that you should follow in his steps. So if we think of Christ as our pattern, or we follow in his steps, the language of performance or improvisation might be ways of thinking about this. Pattern, uh, hoopagramon. Uh, elsewhere, this is used for uh, lines to teach people to trace out letters. How do you learn your letters? You trace the lines. Jesus is our hoopagramon. He is our pattern. How do you live your lives? Well, it's not going to be this wooden thing like everyone's got to figure out some way to get crucified, but here's the pattern that you know Jesus lived. You know how he treated people. You know how he respected God. This is the pattern that you live your life after. And so as you follow in his steps, this language of performance and improvisation is not, we know it's not this hypocrisy, this play acting, but it's, okay, I know the way of Christ. I know that's my pattern, and whatever culture I find myself in, I seek to live the way of the cross in that culture. And sometimes the way of the cross means that you're going to submit even to broken institutions as a way of, um, as Jesus did. Jesus submitted to broken institutions, but he didn't submit in this passive sense where he never spoke, he never resisted at all, uh, but, but he is also... He walks the way of the cross while speaking about truth and justice. 
This isn't a tail between your legs kind of hunched puppy dog, uh, but it is a, a, a strong, uh, you know yourself, you know your identity as God's people, and yet uh, you nevertheless see the redemptive power of the cross as you live that out in your culture. And the church has got to work hard to think about what this looks like, and I certainly don't have all the answers. Um, but I can point us, at least to some degree, to the pattern. We've got to get our pattern, and then we think about how to live according to that hoopagramon, how to uh, faithfully improvise wherever we find ourselves. Because if we are, I think if we are sincere in this, we are going to be kind of weird in our culture, as some of us have already experienced um, uh, in various degrees. Um, so, let's see my time here. All right, five minutes. I'll, John, yeah. Um, I guess as I, I read these these passages, I can't help but think of who wrote it. Yeah. Peter was, from everything I've learned from history, was a zealot. Uh, um. Or, or, or seemed to. He had some strong feelings, anyway. Yeah, the, and he's the tradition the is he's killed. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. He's the, so the guy who cuts off the ear. A, yeah. Uh, some thread in his DNA that at one point in time in his, Good. his yeah. life sought a physical, political revolution mm-hmm. overthrow. And so as I read the Peter's mindset now, um, I think that was an important issue to him. That this yeah. is not about a violent overthrow or insurrection. Mm-hmm. Of the way things are. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. That's a helpful way of thinking about it. Peter wanted to go the way of revolution, and then, kind of against his will, he saw the way of the cross. And I think perhaps through the cross and resurrection, he saw the immense power of it as well. I mean, it's hard for us who want to assert our rights to also accept the way of the cross and to see it as effective because we also are microwave culture. We want to see immediate effects, right? And the way of the cross seems to sometimes have very slow and painful effectiveness. Um, Quickly then, verse 18, he first points to slaves. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but to those who are harsh, for it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. Why would they do this? Because they are learning to see the world differently. This is a terrible plan unless the way of the cross matters. And then if you're conscious of God, as it says in verse 19, maybe there is some power in it. But how is it credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. (laughs) To this you were called. Yikes. And I think as Peter is speaking to slaves, this is going to the church as a whole. We are called to this as uh, our spiritual work in this temple. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you a pattern. That's that hoopagramma language. That you should follow in his steps. I looked at you in the eyes, several of you, and said you are the people of God. And your calling is to pattern Christ in your life. We like the first, maybe better than we like the second. <laughs> he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree 
not the cross. The language here is tree. The tree is the place of shame. He is highlighting the shame of the cross. This is one of the most shameful ways to die. It's reserved uh, for the worst. You're strung up there naked. People are uh, hurling insults at you. Um, and you are left as an example. And in Deuteronomy, uh, it talks about curse is the one on the cross. So he captures this in this language. Here is your Lord and Messiah, the one who bore this on the cross. So that, why does he do this? We might die to sins and live for righteousness. Peter doesn't highlight uh, simply forgiveness. He highlights new life that we got at the beginning here. Uh, and so, as one person says, the atonement idea here is sanctifying atonement. He does this not just so we might go to heaven, but so that we might live new lives. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this brilliant chapter called The Perfect Penitent. And his basic idea is, uh, when we think about what Jesus did, uh, what he did is did what we were unable to do, not just for forgiveness sake, but by becoming human and taking on flesh, he makes it possible for us who are human to follow in his steps. We cannot repent perfectly, but if he lives in us and he has redeemed our flesh, then we might live, as it says here, for righteousness. For you were like sheep going astray. We were lacking proper direction. We were lacking our true right. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. All right, I won't keep going because it's 1050, but uh, 1 Peter is powerful and challenging, and uh, it produces about as many questions as answers. But don't forget this week who you are and what pattern you are uh, to imitate your lives after. See you all. Next week, the really good chapter. Yes, and Lauren's got it. Lauren's <laughs> going to talk about wives and husbands.